We already do Ruby anti-patterns. <laughs> no, that's a great no. one, though. We did? We, or we didn't? No. no. We did What's Wrong with Ruby. Yeah, we oh. did, but, yeah, but <clears throat> I don't think that's really Ruby anti-patterns. Yeah, Ruby anti-patterns would be like class variables. Class variables, yay! <laughs> Rescue nil! <laughs> I think my favorite is uh, you have a constant, which generally implies that it's constant, and then you can go in and define constant. <laughs> yeah, constants aren't variables don't. Can we do a coherent episode on that without without prep for it? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, <laughs> any, any, time, any time you've run into this horrible Ruby thing that scared the crap out of you, you know, right? There are lists of, of pet peeves, and then there's James' master list. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll all just sit here and listen to James rant for an hour. <laughs> and when you do this, it makes me so damn mad! <laughs> And if you do that, I will come to your house and take your keyboard away. (laughs) Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello, hello. We have James Edward Gray. Hello, everyone. So so I'm back from the dead. Uh, I was sick last week. And we also have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm almost here. <laughs> All right, so this week we were, we were chatting for quite a while about what we wanted to do for topic. And uh, somebody pointed out this uh, tweet by uh, Jeremy McAnally basically saying, you know, what's your least favorite um, Ruby antipattern? And so we started uh, we started talking about it, and we realized that we have a pretty good episode for this. So we're going to talk about some of the stuff that people do in Ruby that drives us crazy. So um, I, I think James had the longest list, so why don't we have you go first, James? Does that mean James is the most angry among us? I'm just asking. <laughs> uh, it's probably worth mentioning, uh, for those of you uh, who were expecting the Eloquent Ruby episode this week, uh, we were too, but we screwed up our scheduling. Sorry, Russ. We apologize. Um, so we've rescheduled for next week. So you have one more week on Eloquent Ruby. If you haven't finished it up yet, um, go ahead and do that. Uh, we will put the link to the page uh, on our site where we're collecting questions. So feel free to give us questions you'd like us to ask Russ. And we'll talk about Eloquent Ruby next week. Yeah. If you have questions, you can also tweet them to at Ruby Rogues on Twitter. That's a good point. Uh, But this week we are going to talk about things in Ruby that drive us crazy. Um, As Chuck said, inspired by Jeremy's uh, tweet. So uh, my response to Jeremy's tweet uh, was uh, the rescue nil statement modifier. So you just have some statement and you tack a rescue nil onto the end of it. Um, That was my uh, initial reaction Maybe we should get Avdi to tell us why that's evil, since he's actually written a book on the topic. Uh, so the reason that's that's evil is um, because um, you can hide a lot of uh, you can hide a lot of things with it. You can accidentally mask exceptions that you did not expect to mask. And, um, and, and it may not be obvious to the reader that you're doing that because that rescue nil could be all the way at the end of the line. And, you know, God forbid that line might be, you know, 120 characters long or something. Um, and, uh, and you're getting a, a, a nil back and, and really it's, it's, um, it's an exception being masked that you did not realize you were masking. Now I used to, for a while, I thought that rescue, uh, that the rescue at the end of a statement was just an anti-pattern period because of this, because that's pretty much the only thing that people use it for. Um, but I realized uh, that there's actually one, at least one kind of cool use of rescue at the end of a statement, which is rescue dollar bang or, uh, or rescue error info if you're going to pull in the English mo- uh, m- library, which uh, that's a nice little idiom for converting runtime errors into return values. So if you want to get the error info back 
but you just you just want to you know you want to inspect it rather than raising it up the call chain you can stick a rescue dollar bang at the end of your statement and now you know you're either going to get the res- return value the regular return value of that statement or you're going to get as a return value the exception that it would have raised or that it tried to raise right but it's an anti-pattern to me i kind of have this analogy where You've got some guy smoking in the bathroom and it happens re- re- regularly. So you, you set up this rescue. You just go turn off the fire alarm because you don't want to evacuate the school because some idiot is smoking in the bathroom. But when the stage catches fire, you don't want to turn off the fire alarm. You want to know what's going on so you know you have to evacuate the school or kill the program. That is a perfect analogy. Chuck, it sounds like you, your high school years were more interesting than mine. I was thinking of the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, one of the problems I have with rescue nil is when you use the statement uh, modifier version of rescue, you are not allowed to specify the kind of exception you want to rescue. Um, rescue just defaults to standard error, which is a very broad category and covering a lot of exceptions. And, but not all of them. But not all of them, right? Good point from Josh there. Um, the but it's a very broad category, and if you you know ideally in your error rescuing, you're rescuing just the errors you care about, um, and so generally defaulting to a broad rescue statement is going to be bad. And what invariably happens is you do it because you ran into some error. And then uh, later, some code gets changed under there and starts throwing another error, but it's masked by the fact uh, that, you know, there's a rescue statement returning a harmless value there, uh, or maybe harmful value. In the case of nil, actually, it's probably more harm than good. Uh, Rails has been guilty of this at many points in its life cycle, swallowing exceptions and turning them into uh, things that, uh, are not helpful at all and hide the actual problems. So uh, I think it's just best to avoid altogether. Yeah, one other thing I want to point out is that to me this is kind of a code smell because effectively um, most of the time when you see something like this, it isn't because um, they're getting an error that they want to ignore. They're getting an error they don't understand. And so it's a code smell because it's indicative of the fact that you really don't understand what the code underneath is doing. And uh, you need to be able to understand that and know exactly what you're rescuing from and exactly what you want to do under those circumstances. All right. I don't want to be the only guy to rant. So somebody else say something that bothers you. Oh, I can do that. Um, Let's see. um, I guess we should start with some of the more basic ones. So uh, I I think that uh, the, the proper idiomatic way to do a guard for a nil um, value before you try and access it is uh, is not using the ternary operator. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah. So you often see like user question mark user dot name colon nil, and the proper way to do that in Ruby is user it's and try right. Oh my god! I'm going to strangle you. <laughs> <laughs> That try is the other uh, thing that I wrote down here as the anti-pattern for this. <laughs> is that try try is horrible. Uh, the 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 proper way to do that is user and and user dot name, uh, which is great because you can do user and and user dot name and and user dot name dot upcase if you really want to go crazy and chain those things. But no, the turn the just using um, the boolean combinations like that is so much cleaner in Ruby. So agreed, definitely. That, 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 that's a cute little one. <laughs> but but on the heels of that, I really hate try, and it's ironic because I actually patched try in Rails to make it better. But um, the no, I think try is it, it's sort of on the on the level of rescue nil, in that it uh, it's optimizing the case that. Uh, that you don't want to optimize. You don't. You don't want to set your code to the in the direction of hiding all the information about, uh, that you need to deal with you know, the exceptional case in your code. Yeah, and on the heels of that, I kind of want to. Uh, one thing that bothers me is when you see that over and over and over again. That same guard, you know, whether that's a and and a dot name or whatever. Um, if you're doing that all over the place, put it into a method. 
I mean, you know, it doesn't take that long, but then then you have that guard everywhere, and then you can do a dot name what whatever you want to call it, and just know that it's protected, and that you'll get nil back if you don't expect, or if you expect your object to possibly be nil. Mm-hmm. Well, well, this and this just falls right into the law of Demeter, where you know if if you have a, oh, we're getting some feedback on someone's mic. David, it's, it's not me. Oh, by the way, hi guys. Hi. <laughs> hi, David. I uh, so I hear you guys are still doing this podcast. Yeah, we're. Yeah, you saying? should you you should do I, it with us sometime. I, should, I I thought today I'd show up fashionably late instead of fashionably not at all. <laughs> um. So our guest rogue this week is David Brady. Yeah. David. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm doing a half-ass podcast instead of a full-ass <laughs> podcast. So, David, we are discussing Ruby anti-patterns, which basically means we get to rant for an hour. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I knew <laughs> sweet. Show the, this show was made for you. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, can, can, I, can I finish what I was saying yes. about Demeter? Okay, yes. so, so uh, yeah, Chuck, I liked what you were saying, and the – that's actually right along with the law of Demeter is that instead of saying like, uh, you know, user dot name and, and user dot name dot upcase, you can have like user dot upcase name and that'll take care of, of, uh, dealing with the name object for you. The, the law of Demeter just says you only talk to your arguments or, uh, of the, I'm sorry, your worship. Could you, uh, Articulate the law of Demeter for me this morning. Or objects you create, I think. <laughs> Hand that man a scepter. <laughs> <laughs> and a, and a, pair of, a pair of hair snails. Um, I am actually wearing my golden bikini this morning. It's, it's funny you should bring that up. Right. <laughs> Do that way too well. <laughs> I, I, I feel like we might have a nerd in our midst in this programming uh, podcast. Who? Who? <laughs> Find the witch! Find the witch! <laughs> um, what were we talking about? Uh, you, the law you were gonna of Demeter? <laughs> All right, well, the, the law of Demeter, as expressed by the Galactic Senate, is um, that... <laughs> It's basically a way of limiting the number of types that a specific – it's a rule. It's a guideline, um, sort of a rule of thumb for limiting the number of types that that an individual method interacts with. Uh, so it basically says, uh, you can, you can, you can play with your own toys, the toys that you make yourself, you can play with toys that other people give you, but you can't take them apart. Um, and, uh, and that kind of limits you to, uh, to working with, with the types that are directly passed into you or that you own yourself, but not with, uh, the, uh, the type that you get from calling a method, from calling a method, from calling a method, uh, you know, deep down into some other objects, uh, composition hierarchy. Right, and the 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 thing that I was talking about, which is um, it totally in alignment with the goals of Demeter, although not explicitly expressed, is that when you when you don't do that, you know, a dot b dot c dot whatever uh, chaining of methods, then you, I mean, breaking everything out into that chain means that you are making assumptions about the internal structure, effectively, of other objects. And it's better to let those objects handle their own internal structure. So, you know, rather than you know asking object A for object B and asking object A B for object C directly, you say object A, give me your, you know, the C object from somewhere deep in your guts, and you'll 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 know better than me. Right. Exactly. Or at, le- at the very least, use different methods in your in your class um, for dealing with the different levels of, of object B uh, so that, you know, so that when that, that structure changes um, you don't have to rewrite every single method in your class because every single method in your class expected to be able to, to sort of step down through that entire structure. Yeah. I, I think the law of Demeter is the thing that uh, most programmers roll their eyes at when you, when you bring it up and they're like, but it's just so easy to chain all these methods together. And it's, well, yeah, sure. Then go, uh, you'll go have to clean up your code whenever somebody changes one of those things. What, what I love is when you say, when you talk about the law of Demeter, you will get some 
uh, I don't know how to say this without getting political, but basically you get some complete uh, anarchist nut job on your team who says, it's not a law! <clears throat> Um, and, and that's the end of the discussion, right? You can't even have a discussion about what Demeter means, about what it is. They heard the word law, and they're like, screw you. I'm doing it my way. So for the, for the people that are, like, like, you know, punching their fists in the air listening to that right now, um, um, just, to, just, just to, to make it clear, um, the law terminology in the law of Demeter refers to the fact that it is sort of – it is uh, – quantitatively observable i guess might be the term um that that when you couple couple your code to other object structure in this way in this way or you know violating the violating demeter then various um ill effects emerge and when you don't couple it that way uh then you know experience shows that it tends to that various sort of uh you know good effects good you know it, other good OO uh, qualities tend to just sort of emerge uh, just by by forcing yourself to follow this this guideline. So yeah, it's, it, it's a law in the sense that that you know you can observe that gravity works. Yeah, um, right. Not no, no, no. It's it's intelligent says, falling. About... <laughs> intelligent. It's intelligent what? It's intelligent falling. Nice. Falling. I like it. If, if anyone is doubtful that gravity, the theory of gravity is accurate, please throw yourself off your roof. And if you yeah. survive, have your wife send a picture to the Ruby Rogues and we will definitely <laughs> retract this statement. Screw Ruby Rogue, send it to James Randy. He'll give you a million bucks. That's right. <laughs> and if you manage to throw yourself off the roof and miss, well, you just figured out how to fly. How, how to fly, yeah. <laughs> don't, so, don't forget your towel. So, uh, on the law of Demeter, and and by the way, my response to the it's not a law, yes it is! Um, But anyway, uh, you know, there's one of my favorite anti-patterns, and this is, this anti-pattern requires that you already be in a state of sin, uh, because you're breaking the law of Demeter, um, is that in Rails we have the try method. And, you know, so you can say, you know, know, user.try colon city and if uh user is nil then this will return nil but if user is a real user object it'll go get the city from this person and i hate this is this is actually a corner case of this the general case of this anti-pattern is i hate uh sending a symbol to do a methods job um i also hate sending a symbol to do a classes job um yeah but if you're gonna if you're gonna break the law of demeter Get Reg Braithwaite's and and gem and stop using the try method in Rails. And the reason why is because you can type user dot and and dot because you can't overload the ampersand ampersand operator. Uh, user dot and and dot city. And if user is null, that will return a basically a null object that uh, is a wrapper that you can call the city method on, and it will return nil. Um, and and down the road you go. And uh, because I wouldn't be me if I didn't take everything to a perverse extreme, um, I actually built a gem a few years ago. It's it's gone from the gem index mercifully. Uh, maybe I ought to put it back. Uh, but I wrote a gem called Turtles. And what Turtles lets you do is it lets you have nil all the way down. So it lets you violate uh, the law of D- Demeter. There's violating the law of Demeter, and then there's gang raping the law of Demeter. And Turtles lets you do the second one. Um, if you turn on Turtles, it turns every single call into basically it wraps no method error on nil so that you can literally call uh user dot city dot mayor dot uh children dot first dot last name and if any of those objects is null as long as you did it in a with turtles block it's turtles all the way down it, it, it just works just great um and so uh that's one of my favorite anti-patterns because i deliberately wrote it to be an anti-pattern um, I'll post a link to that where you can get that from GitHub. It's it's horrible. It's it's got good specs on it, by the way. And um, I am astonished at how many people have written back to me in horror at the turtles code uh, because they believe I was serious when I wrote it, and that that boggles my mind. Break well, that, the law or break the line style, huh? Yeah. 
<laughs> At least you exactly. got people writing back saying, saying, oh my god, this this gem is so awesome. Thank you for writing, and I'm using it in all my projects. Yeah, god, yeah. It's, it's like, I'll just write an autoresponder that writes back and says, God help you. <laughs> so, so David, you just admitted giving into the dark side. Oh, I don't give Ouch. in. I jump in with both feet. It's, you know. David likes to wade in the dark side pool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, I worked uh, on a project once that had that had something like that. It was called Ignore Nil, and it was a block mm-hmm. just like that. And all it did was suppress no method error. It didn't care what the no method error came from. Oh, uh, it just suppressed God. no method error. Uh, and this was all throughout the project. So you would have huge, you know, like sections of the code that were covered by Ignore Nil. Mm-hmm. Um, and awesome. no method, no, you know, no, you know, misspelled methods or anything would ever signal <laughs> from that. So an ignore nil, that's actually a brilliant refactoring. I've got all this duplication. Every single line of code ends with rescue nil. That's duplication. I should get rid of that. <laughs> all right. So we have not heard an anti-pattern from Josh or, or sorry, Avdi or Chuck. I'll just wait Avdi out. <laughs> All right. Um, so, so my favorite is unless else, where you have you. Ha- I mean, uh, unless is great. Unless yes. you know is the inverse of if, and uh, and it, it can be quite readable sometimes. But then you take you take an unless, and, uh, and then you violate it by tacking an else on the end of it. Now, if you can read an unless else, and and it just makes perfect sense to you then you are a Cylon. You are not a human being. <laughs> wow. That's Star Wars, BSG, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> and a damn useful it, this test. This is some kind of cyborg detector. It's, it's a replicant detector, okay? Um, oh, I, just watched, <laughs> I just watched Blade Runner two nights ago. <laughs> I love Blade Runner. <laughs> if 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 like that's 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 one of the replicate tests. You know, they flash an unless else in front of the person's eyes, and if he doesn't recoil in horror, then then he's clearly a robot. So, um, yeah, I don't do that. Just don't. If you're not a robot, then you might not be a human. <laughs> what? <laughs> Just in case it's not painfully clear. If you are doing unless else, you can just switch it to if else and reverse the two clauses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So so Next. it's else and then else else, huh? Right. <laughs> I I confess I have written code that most clearly read to me as if not some condition, do this else, do this other condition. And the reason I did it that way was because the if not condition was it was like if not failed, um, and so I wanted the the positive case the the happy path to be at the top in the top block, but yeah I didn't write unless there you, you know it's, there, it's there's nothing wrong with that you shouldn't be I mean there, there's no need to be afraid of I mean the, the not operator at all I mean yeah if you mm-hmm. string a ton of them together that's going to get confusing yeah nobody likes multiple negatives but if it's if it's if it's between using unless else and just tacking a knot on the first on the first condition use the knot ain't nobody doesn't like multiple negatives <laughs> yeah basically i think anybody who writes unless else needs to be forced to use it in a sentence <laughs> yeah about unless not else not Ouch. Any- anyway um so if we're done with that one i think my biggest pet peeve is is when people misuse method missing this, this is something we, we uh, discussed when we were discussing some of the anti-patterns. The, the big thing for me, I mean, for one, um, I, I think we were talking about it and we were saying that if you have a, a list of like defined uh, messages that you want your object to respond to, then you, know, you should be able to just loop through them with define method. But I find, I've actually found people defining um, – effectively defining methods and method missing where they actually know the signature – of the method that they need to define, where rather than define method, they could actually just go in and def this, do this other thing. And I, I it blows my mind how many people just, you know, they, they use it when really, you know, you want you want that method to show up in, in the object's method signature. You don't want it hidden down in method missing where, you know, who knows what it's going to do. 
Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I know. And closely aligned with that. Um, defining method missing without defining respond to. Respond to, yep. Although I just learned from an exchange you had on Twitter uh, yesterday, Avdi, I, I did not know this before yesterday, we have a respond to missing. And so you, if you if it goes up the respond to stack and doesn't find anything, it'll call respond to missing. So you can override respond to missing as you do method missing. Um, which is kind of weird because uh, it, I guess that exists, you know, for parody, which is kind of cool. But, you know, the thinking there would be that you could probably get away without doing super. But then Avdi came back and said, well, not really, because, you know, all good method missing implementations need to call super anyway so that you pick up, you know, any other included modules or anything like that mm. that defined their own. So same thing with respond to missing. Well, that was a special case. Um, so that, that was in the, in the, in the context of the, the, the hack I posted today, which is, uh, or actually yesterday, which is um, a, a trick for defining method missing and respond to at the same time using a, 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 a macro. Um, and, because of the way that works, to, to behave well, it needs to call super in, in respond to missing. Um, I do like the fact, like, if you're just doing a, t- a, a an ordinary class um, that needs to do some kind of proxying or something, and so you have a simple um, a simple meth- method missing, uh, it's it makes sense to define respond to missing, and and you don't you, you can avoid the super if you know you're not doing anything super fancy in that class. My my thing was just had to do with having lots of modules all of which define uh respond to missing all included in the same class so what you guys were talking about reminds me of another pet peeve that i have and and that is people that don't call super in there when they monkey patch or inherit or whatever it drives me crazy and and the reason that it, it reminded me is because sometimes people don't call method missing or they don't call super in method missing and then you don't get the no method error returned when it doesn't respond to the um to the message being sent to the object but you know ultimately you you need to be calling super because usually there's stuff that needs to happen you know maybe a level or two up that you didn't define and especially when you're mixing in modules i mean then then you're just asking for trouble if you don't and it's not just for monkey patching. I mean, it, just in general, it's a good idea to get into the, if you're if you're going to be subclassing something um, or including modules, it's a good idea to get into the habit of of, of calling super, especially in your initialized method, um, but often in other methods as well. And if you're in a method where you're concerned that that you're not going to be able to call uh, super, you know, that super is going to explode because there is no super, you know, you're not sure that there's a super um, because you're in a module or something. You can use uh, defined the defined operator uh, with super to ask Ruby if there is a super for this for this method. So you can say defined defined question mark super uh, and uh, or you know if defines question mark super then then uh, super. That's an awesome trick. I didn't know about that one until recently, but uh, defined is a key word. So if you're expecting it to be one of the normal methods in Ruby, uh, it'll surprise you. It has very specialized behavior. And if you pass uh, super to it, it it will basically answer the question, do I have a super method to hand off to? I almost have to wonder if respond to missing isn't an attempt to optimize uh, the speed of method missing, because if if respond to missing missing works by just going up, you know, you know, we we check the class, we check the super class, we check the super super class, uh, and then we call respond to missing. Where the like the one eight seven implementation, we check the child class, and then we ask method missing, and no, okay, then we go to the parent class, and then we check it for method missing, and then we go to the grandparent class, one, and then we check its method. I don't know if that. I guess that wouldn't work anyway. You'd you'd still have to do that anyway. Yeah, you have to. Do no, this. it's still doing that. It's still doing okay, that. It's yeah. just it's it's an optimization. It's a programmer optimization for not having to remember to always call super in your respond to. Uh, I see. I see. Okay, and also gives the advantage that your respond to missing is going to be as late as possible in the method missing chain. Yeah. So we have uh, several more we want to go over, but David did have a really good one earlier that I would like to hear him elaborate on. So David, tell us what you mean by never use a symbol to do a methods job. 
Okay, all right. So I, you're only saying that because I whined about it in the back channel. Um, thank you. I, now I know that whining in the back channel works. Um, but uh, no, just really, really quickly, um, like like uh, the and and gem, I love because you can call like x dot and and dot foo and pass it whatever arguments. And I hate the try method um, where you you call x dot try and you pass it the symbol foo. Um, and the reason why is the reason I hate send, I, I call it don't send a symbol to do a method's job. The reason I hate this is because you know that the foo method exists. You know it's a real method. You know it's a real thing. Go ahead and call it. Keep treating it like a uh, like a method. And if you if you want to see this in action, use the try method to uh, assign a uh, a value to a hash that might be nil because you have to call hash dot try colon left bracket close right bracket equals comma some value um cl- you know close thing and trying to access the value of a hash same problem whereas with and and you say hash dot and and open bracket and you know and you you Type in your value and close bracket equals va- or you know key close bracket equals value, and the uh, Curtis Rainbolt Green talked about this on Twitter recently. He ran into the same uh, similar problem where you know never say uh, render uh, colon and then you know colon my renderer when you've got the my renderer class right there in the namespace. Just actually type the name of the class capital M Y capital R renderer pass the class name. In, in that place. Now, if this, is, if this is in a YAML file or if this is in something that's serialized where that class doesn't exist, sure, go ahead, knock yourself out, go ahead and use symbols because that's what a symbol is for. It's, it's meant to define, to symbolize something. But if you're in the Ruby namespace and those objects exist, use the objects. Don't, don't put names on them um, that you then later have to decode, especially in the case of methods where the decoding and encoding has a different syntax. It actually looks and behaves differently than the way that the actual method call looks. It's, 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 they are equivalent, but they are not identical. And so, with, so anyway. Yeah. yeah so, so, so Ruby is not exactly Lisp and, yeah. and it's also not, um, IO actually it's Steve, Steve DeCourt's language IO. Uh, the, the representation of, of executable code and, the, and, and talking about code at a meta level, they look the same. So it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of crazy. It's like you almost don't need blocks, although yeah. you do. Uh, it, anyway, um, I, so, I, so I have a rant. I'm sorry, an anti-pattern. <laughs> and that's, and that's um, inheriting from array or hash or just other string. core data types string in general. Yes, string. Um, the, uh, the, I mean, there, there are definitely... Uh, cases where you want to do this kind of stuff when you're when you get expert level, like I've I've inherited from module to create specialized kinds of modules that have extra behavior. That you, once you know what you're doing, sure, go nuts. But in general, you don't want to inherit from an array. You want to take an array and put it in an instance variable of your own object, and then you know delegate the particular array type behavior that you care about exposing. But Josh, I have all the methods on enumerable that I have to implement now. Yeah, screw you. <laughs> Good answer. The um, uh, Josh is right, and and there are some severe gotchas for doing so. Uh, Ruby takes uh, some shortcuts uh, in the system, mainly to make uh, things go faster. And so there are cases where you can. Uh, for example, say you inherit from string and you put some code in the initialize to, uh, you know, set up some instance variables for something you're going to track. The problem is there's ways to get strings in Ruby without the initialize method ever being called. For example, mm-hmm. if you do a G sub on an existing string, uh, then you get another string back, but G sub is not, or sorry, initialize is not called on the string return. So and there's other behaviors like this where Ruby cuts certain corners uh, for the sake of speed or whatever. So if you're relying on those core classes to behave exactly like uh, your classes would, you're going to be surprised. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 they actually in in some of the one nine work they've been changing how things work on array and when you get like when it creates a new version of the array and when it when you get back the old array side affected or what have you. So yeah, yeah, you just have you you have confusing stuff like you can do, do something as simple as add two arrays together. You know, use plus to add two arrays together, and and suddenly you don't have your special array anymore. Because it because it created an original you know an original flavor array rather than your special array for the concatenation. Yeah, I, I want to point out that at the code retreat, I actually subclassed array for Conway's Game of Life, sure, which fire. yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, leave I, this show. <laughs> if I hang what up, this ha- goes away. Chuck what, Chuck, what happens at code retreat stays at code retreat. That's right. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I just. The the thing is is yeah even then it made me uncomfortable because I, I didn't completely understand everything that goes on with array and and delegation seemed like a, a better way of going but anyway um the guy I was coding with his his thing was finally just yeah, and I got tired of arguing with him but basically it was well we're gonna throw it away in in forty five minutes and you know we just want to get this done fast so we can move on to other parts. But, uh, you know, if there's any chance you're going to keep that code, I, I'm with you guys on this. You go to Code Retreat, you've got 45 minutes to write a piece of code. The whole reason you're there that day is to learn better ways to do code and to walk into a coding exercise and say, um, Let's I'm, in a, I, I'm in a hurry. Let's do this like crap. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're fired, but maybe you should leave the Code Retreat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going to go out on a limb a little bit here and say that in Ruby, um, uh, you know, inheritance can itself can kind of be an anti-pattern. I mean, it's one of those things to really think twice about. Uh, other languages, you you just have to in- inherit if you want to get things done. Um, but I've seen so many cases in Ruby of code that really it, there was no reason to have that base class there. It could easily have been a base module. Um, and uh, it's just it's actually very rare that 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 inheritance makes sense. I, I was just going to agree with that, but I think uh, it, we rely on inheritance a bit too much in Ruby. It's it's funny how a, a lot of the things you need inheritance for in other languages just don't apply in Ruby because of duck typing and stuff like that. So it, you just don't need it that much. However, that said, there are cases where inheritance just makes a heck of a lot of sense and it is exactly what you want. And some Ruby programmers actually, you know, get to the habit of avoiding it so much um, that, uh, you know, they do some kind of crazy things to avoid inheritance. In fact, uh, here, since we're going to talk about Eloquent Ruby next week, one of the, there's just a couple examples in Eloquent Ruby I don't like. And uh, there's one uh, in a delegation chapter uh, later on where he inherits from simple delegator and then passes that to a class. So class less than simple delegator and inherits from something and uh, does all this. This is the most complicated way I have ever seen to reproduce inheritance. Uh, And it has no benefit that I can recognize. So uh, in that case, just inherit. You know, if if you need to inherit, then you inherit, you know. Uh, But yeah. Right. Yeah. So so the flip side of that is another uh, pet peeve of mine, and that's explicitly checking the type of of an object, usually an argument. that it's like, yeah, it's like don't don't ask the object what its class is. You know, do a respond to for a particular method that you would expect that that class to implement, or or don't, you know, or don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to deal with that. Uh, so, sometimes I will um, invent my own notion of types and and just throw some predicates on particular classes. So I'll monkey patch, you know, special question mark into object and have it return false. And then I'll put, you know, special question mark into a couple classes that I want to note as being the kind that I care about. Uh, you know, Avdi's trick with uh, mixing in modules as type tags is something that you can do um, if you're not on a cranky version of Ruby that makes that really slow. There's actually a... a... So we, we talk about duct typing, right? And I actually, to drill home that point of don't check the type, don't check the type, don't check the type, um, I, I have rephrased a lot of duct typing as this. If it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, 
you're not allowed to give a crap what it is. <laughs> right. Okay. You know that the one you just did, Josh, where um oh the you know the checking the type of the class. I always think of that one as uh, space balls when he has the little fit about you're always preparing, just go. You know, I, I always think of it as that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Stop preparing. So. Just go. Just call the method. Just do it. Okay. So, so James, do you want to do the uh, inherit from struck new, or should I? No, no I, I'll definitely do it. This is definitely one of my pet peeves. Um, okay, go for it. Struck, struck new. Uh, when people are making structs all the time, this is simple, similar to my simple delegator example. They do class less than, and then they define struct new right there on the as the super class. Um, don't do that. Uh, that's stupid for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, it causes all kinds of problems with all the crazy reloading code we have everywhere because every time your class gets reloaded, then you get a new superclass, and so you get a superclass mismatch error. Uh, but the main reason not to do it is struct was built for subclassing in mind, and it takes a block. Struct new takes a block. And it just runs it in the context of that class. So you can just do struct new and uh, put a block right there and define methods directly in it. So uh, there's no reason to do that. And you get the class you want, and then you can assign it to a constant. And uh, there you could use or equal if you need to, and then you handle the reloading case as well. So uh, anyways, don't don't use struct as a superclass on the superclass line. Just uh, give it a block and define your methods in there. In my code, they need a destruct. <laughs> so we got to nice. do uh, the ternary operator real quick before we do picks. We have lots of things to say about it. Okay. okay. I didn't mean me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, this is this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, but I just found out that that uh, apparently everybody here shares it. So. Um, if I see a ternary operator, uh, uh, the ternary operator being the, uh, the the operator that three takes three arguments with the, the question mark and the colon, um, works like an if then else. If I see that, I expect it to be a purely functional expression. That is an expression that just returns a value and doesn't have any side effects. Um, and uh, if if you if you put some kind of side effect expression in there, so you, you use it as a switch for for con, you know control flow, um, I get confused and annoyed, um, and uh, I, I really I really prefer to see that if it's going to be control flow like that, I prefer to see that as an actual if then else. So that's just a, a, a peeve of mine. Totally agreed. Yeah, it's for I, – I, I mainly only use the ternary operator when I'm assigning a variable, right? So it's just to return some value that I can shove in a variable. And, and this is one of those things – it's not like it's – it's not like Ruby's going to bite you for using the ternary for that. It's just it's, – it's just one of those programming convention things where it's – you know, where certain constructs, you know, tell you something about, you know, what was – about what the programmer had in mind, Mm-hmm. And uh, and generally, when I see a ternary, I expect that to be just a, a logical ex- expression. Yeah, and we're all agreed that you should not nest your ternary operators more than five levels deep, right? <laughs> <laughs> just five? Oh, come on! You're tired. You got to draw the you got to draw the line somewhere. As my five year old would say, oh. <laughs> hey, another thing on the ternary operator, I see this all the time. Um, where you have some test question mark true colon false don't do that <laughs> yeah. please don't do that okay yeah yeah it's better as true colon nil <laughs> yeah if you find yourself doing that first slap yourself on the hand with a the ruler then just select from the question mark on and push the delete key okay <laughs> that way you can just get rid of it all together uh, if you absolutely have to have a Boolean, which uh, you almost never do, but if you think for some reason you really need a true, 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 false, uh, stick a bang bang in front of the test, um, and that will, you know, switch it to a Boolean. So I, I have worked with an API where you had to return a Boolean, like we were talking to a Java server, and so yeah, we we had that, you know, like like bang bang user valid question mark. 
And because for whatever reason, valid didn't return true false, like it returned the, 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 the user object or it returned nil. And bang, bang, turned it into true or false. Yeah, it's, it, it's like defined. That doesn't return true or false. That's right. Defined <laughs> returns a lot of interesting information, like types of variables and stuff like yeah. that. It's pretty cool to play around with. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so I have um, I have a, a something that I actually ran into in somebody's code that I was dealing with that that was completely mystifying. So you so you know how in Ruby, I mean, along these lines, uh, nil is a false type value. It's a falsy value. Uh, so you know it. You know you always do stuff like you know if user you know blah 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 blah. Um, and so you don't have to say like if you know, you, know, you wouldn't say unless user dot nil question mark. Um, or nil p, as we used to say. <coughs> um, I'm not explaining that, by the way. Um, the so so you wouldn't say like you know, you know unless user dot nil. You'd say if user. But there's this pattern of in 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 uh, object oriented programming called the null object pattern, where uh, instead of sprinkling your code in say the user class with all of these um, or or your or even worse your controller class that's using the user class. Uh, the uh, instead of sprinkling all these conditionals through that code, you take all those conditionals and you bind them together in a null user class, and and you've now embodied the user who isn't logged in, and that cleans up all the rest of your code. It's a it's a really nice pattern. It's been talked about a lot of other places. That when you're doing one of these classes in Ruby, never ever ever override the nil question mark method, uh, because while Ooh. while you while you can make nil question mark return what you might expect there, you say, oh, well, this is a null user, so nil should you know, return true because be this bad. isn't a user. That would be incredibly stupid to do that. That would be <laughs> and the, like and, crossing the streams. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so now you can't say like if user because it's not actually nil. It's not the nil value, and that's the only special nil value that, mm-hmm. that the Ruby language knows about. You can't and, trick Ruby into thinking it's an it's nil. <laughs> it and the whole work. point and the whole point of defining a nil a null user nil user is so that you can say if user have it return true have it return the nil user and you can continue operating on it. Yeah, it, it defeats the entire purpose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's like I, you I, actually want to send messages to it. It's not nil. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. anyway, right. so, so just don't do that. James will come. James will come to your house and take away your keyboard. <laughs> yeah. Wait. If you violate any of these rules, you will see the Ruby Rogues on your doorstep. I'm just. Um, <laughs> by the way, the null object pattern uh, that one seems to throw people a lot, and um, it is a really cool pattern. And actually, if you've ever programmed Rails, you've most likely already used it. Um, when you see the typical definitions in Rails uh, of the seven actions we usually put in controllers or whatever they are. The new action usually assigns just like at user equals user dot new. That's a use mm-hmm. of the null object pattern. Basically, you're putting a dummy user in there for the case where the user hasn't yet filled out the form. So you can call all the methods like name and stuff like that, but those fields will be blank. So that's a perfect example of the null object. Uh, I, I would not. I would not call that a null object. Really. Uh- <laughs> Uh, okay. Get, fight, <laughs> fight, fight, fight. Right. Uh, because why? Uh, because it, it has logic. Um, I mean, I've, I've definitely had controllers where the logic in that blank user was used. Um, and it has storage as well. I mean, you can, you can assign those attributes to it, and it actually carries them around. Uh, it doesn't just ignore them. Yeah, I agree. I, I realize that it's not a special object, which I think is what you're saying. But the usage, I believe, is actually the null object pattern usage because what's happening is you haven't filled out the form yet. And so what you want is you want to be able to give the form some user and say, you know, uh, you know, what's your first name? What's your last name? Uh, what's your favorite color? Um, but the, you haven't done those things yet. So you give it a user that has those things. They just all happen to be blank. Um, but, you know, it allows you to use the same user interface. So I, I believe the usage is the same. But I, I do see what you're saying in that typically a null object is a specialized object you choose to return 
to give a consistent interface, right. but it doesn't generally have any kind of storage or anything like that. I, I definitely see that. Right. Like yeah. I would expect if I had a null user, I, I would definitely expect that save to do nothing. Like I'd expect it to respond to save, but it, it would do nothing. Yeah. A null object is supposed to be chemically inert. It will not react with any of your code. Um, most importantly, it will not re react spectacularly exothermically with your code. Um, <laughs> where, where if you're supposed to fill out things and save it on it, that, that seems to me to be a very different thing than, than a null object. At least that's my understanding. Like if you, if you ask the system, who is the current user? You might get back a null user uh, because there's nobody logged in. Um, but if you if you need to fill out the user form or the user login form, yeah, go ahead and call user new because we're going to create this user. Um, and it's yeah. like, like like the null object is not part of the objects of a of a real object's life cycle. To, yeah, to my I, understanding, I, th I think null objects are considered to be immutable. Right. Your mom's immutable. <laughs> and that note, she is. I've checked. Going to the picks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, picks. Uh, we'll have David go first. Uh, pretty JSON plugin for the Chrome uh, browser uh, makes it so that when you're looking at JSON, it pretty prints it, colorizes it, uh, breaks it out. It look it looks like like, like you've run awesome print in Ruby. Um, dumps out all of the the JSON in a nice or the JSON. Uh, it dumps it out in nice nested hashes of hashes of hashes of arrays, of, et cetera. Uh, makes it look really pretty, really readable. Um, people that use it uh, say they have one complaint with it, and that is that you can't copy and paste the JSON once it's been formatted that way. And the workaround for that is you just hit the command option U or control shift U or whatever it is on uh, Windows to view source. And the pretty JSON goes away, and you get back the source JSON that you can then paste into a string, and then you know throw it on a Ruby console and parse it and manipulate it. And that's my pick. I like it. It's pretty. It's useful. All right, Josh. So I have a I have a very useful um, pick, which is uh, the simple form gem. So if you're if you're doing uh, form helpers in Rails, uh, you know form for whatever. Uh, simple form is a much nicer way of doing that. Uh, so for a while I was using uh, what is it Formtastic, which uh, which was pretty good, but I I discovered that I didn't like how opinionated the markup was, and it made it difficult to do some things. Simple Form though uh, it w is sort of a, a much better Formtastic in my opinion, and it it replaces the uh, Form for helper with Simple Form for, and then it 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 has a lot of really smart. Uh, helpers to create the inputs in the form and the new 2.0 release, which will be out any day now. I've been using the um, the master or, or edge or head or whatever you want to call it on on Git these days. Uh, I've been using the the pre-release version of 2.0 and uh, it's great. It has um, integration with Twitter Bootstrap, which I mentioned as my pick last week, uh, which is really nice, and it has a lot of flexibility about how you generate the markup. Um, so I, I've been really happy working with Simple Form, and I recommend it a lot. Um, and then I have a uh, a seasonal pick. Uh, so we're coming up on cold and flu season. So I am going. My pick is the neti pot, um, and, which is yeah. <laughs> so so the, uh, there's a yoga practice. In oh, I thought it, I thought it grew on the neti plant. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, <laughs> thank you. No, the, 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 this is the other San Francisco uh, practice. This is yoga. Uh, so, so there's a yoga practice called uh, neti, uh, which which means cleansing. I think uh, so. Jala neti is cleansing your sinuses. So that you can go to the drugstore and find these like squeeze bulbs to clean out your sinuses. The more traditional yoga way of doing that is they have these things that look like little teapots, and you fill them up with warm salt water, and you wash out your sinuses, and yeah, you know, if you do the so I ride I ride the subway to go to work in San Francisco and it's very it's like a, a petri dish full of people's germs. So uh, if I if I just you know brush my teeth, do my neti pot, I don't get sick the way that everybody else gets sick. So uh, you know usually uh, if I've let it go for a few days and I feel myself coming down with a cold, I'll do neti pot and I just won't get a cold. So it, it's a little uncomfortable until you get used to it. it you know, it, it's like brushing your teeth. you just got to do it. Uh, but it, it's so much worth not you know, being sick in bed for a week. So I Shel will. Been there, done that. Yep. Shel Silverstein wrote a, a poem called There's a Snail in My Nose. 
and the first time you use neti pot, you'll meet the snail. <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> Avdi. I have got nothing this week. I have been racking my brain, and uh, and I don't know. I'm just not interesting this week. Okay, James. <laughs> um, I'll make up for Avdi's uh, lack here with I'm going for Link Splosion here, so uh, we'll see how this goes. Um, I was reminded twice in November of a book I read a long time ago that I've forgotten how much I just absolutely love. Um, and that's Pragmatic Thinking and Learning. Um, it's a, basically a book about how our brain works and then how, if you know that, you can uh, basically use that knowledge to your advantage. Um, it's tilted a little bit toward programmers, so, so that makes it even more great, um, and how you can use it to be more productive and things like that. I wanted to focus on uh, one specific tip that it has is um, uh, to get an exocortex, is how Andy Hunt describes it. Andy is the author. Um, and the exocortex is basically the idea that you need some place where you can write all your ideas down, write your thoughts down, put them somewhere so that you get them out of your head. Um, and if you're familiar with other like productivity systems, uh, that's a very common thing. Uh, getting things done has you, uh, you know, keep these uh, lists of things, uh, again, to get them out of your brain because they keep popping up in your brain and, and bothering you and bogging you down. Uh, also, if you like the Pomodoro technique, uh, it has a similar thing where you handle interruptions by writing them down and then get, getting back to what you're doing. If you are into Pomodoro, the Prags have a great book on that too called uh, Pomodoro Illustrated. Uh, Pomodoro Technique Illustrated, and it's a really good book. So anyways, you need some kind of exocortex, your brain outside of your brain. Um, a lot of people use Moleskine notebooks uh, for that, and um, that's great for them. I'm, I'm glad if that works for them. It doesn't work for me. I, I actually have to have it in the computer. Uh, a lot of people like not having it in the computer, but uh, that doesn't work for me. Although I will say, if you are going to get into moleskin notebooks, there are Star Wars moleskin notebooks, uh, which your worship would definitely approve of. So uh, I think, you know, that's an argument in their favor. Anyways, what I'm currently using for my exocortex is um, Evernote, uh, which is a, you know, it's kind of a note-taking program. Um, and it, it has a lot of features. I've actually heard that leveled as a, a complaint against it, that it's uh, got a lot of features. And it's true that I don't use all of them. For example, you can put files and stuff in it, uh, but not storing files in a file system is kind of weird to me. So I, I don't go quite that far. It can do things like audio and video notes. I don't do that. But uh, it does have some features I really love as far as uh, keeping track of things. For example, it gives you an email address that you can fire things to and then have those end up in your uh, various note groupings. Um, and the reason I love that is like if a client sends me an email and is like, could you take care of this, this, and this? Um, I just forward it to that special email address um, and I can change the subject to be whatever I want, which ends up being the note title. And then it also gives you a way to embed some things in the subject to like, tag it with certain tags or make sure it ends up in a certain notebook and things like that. So I send that message over to Evernote. And then uh, also when I'm editing it in Evernote, uh, Evernote will let you just basically put uh, check boxes anywhere, like almost like you were typing it, you know, any old letter on your keyboard, you can just type a checkbox basically. So then I go through that client's note and type check boxes everywhere. They were like, can you do this and this and this? Uh, and then I can check those boxes off as I accomplish those things. And I also have a saved search that'll bring up any notes uh, with check boxes that aren't checked. So that's basically my to-do list, right? Um, so I, I find it easy for keeping track of things I need to do. Uh, also, it has some sharing features. So if you, if you work with other Evernote users, you can uh, share those uh you know, ideas with other people and, and kind of work together, use it as a uh, collaboration system. So uh, for me, I like that about it. Um, I would encourage people to look around, though. I've definitely tried a ton of things uh, from just using plain text files on my computer to um, 
running a wiki and, and trying to edit that. I found that was a little too much process for me. Uh, uh, but um, you should try and find what works for you. Um, Barebones has a kind of Evernote-like product called Yojimbo. Um, so it may be that you like that one. Again, it's pretty centered on uh, getting lots of different kinds of information into it. So it's very featureful. And, and for me, it just doesn't uh, work as well as, as Evernote does for me. But you should check it out. James, Yojimbo isn't hosted, is it? It runs locally. on That's your, correct. On that, is, yeah. that is true. That's a difference. Evernote is a hosted service. So uh, anything you save in Evernote is, is pushed up to the cloud by default. You can shut that off if you want for certain things. But uh, it's pushed up to the cloud. And then if you have your iPhone or your iPad... You can run Evernote on them, and you're basically looking at the same notes everywhere, uh, whereas your Jimbo is is uh, not hosted, so it's all going to be on your computer. Yeah. J- James, th- there's a podcast called Mac Power Users, uh-huh. and and they did a whole like hour long episode about Evernote in October. Oh, sweet! So, so it and and the and literally the guy who wrote the book on Evernote was their guest. And so they have, you know, they have like an hour of power user tricks about using Evernote. It's if if you're getting into Evernote, just listen to it. It's awesome. Sweet. So that's a great uh, that's a great source for people looking at it. Uh, like I said, I have heard some people complain that Evernote's too heavy, and I saw uh, kind of a conversation on Twitter uh, yesterday or the day before about some options. If you feel that way. There's a Simple Note app, which is kind of like Evernote minus a bunch of features. So if you do feel it's a little heavy, that might be uh, one way to go. Uh, the other, um, uh, another app I've seen uh, mentioned a lot recently, if you're really an outline-y kind of person, is Workflowy. Um, and it's a big outliner, but it'll let you focus in on specific parts of the outline and kind of treat those as individual nodes. So anyways, these are all various options uh, that make for good, like, exocortex kind of uh, software. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes, but I encourage you to look around and find one that works for you, because it makes a massive difference. Okay, that's it. I'm really done. So I guess I'm last. Nobody's going to be able to find my picks after James. Um, anyway, so the, the things that I wanted to point out, I just found a new... Uh, finder replacement because the the regular Mac Finder is it's awesome, but it I don't know I I sometimes wish it would do more stuff. And uh, the one that I've been using lately, I actually just bought it because I I really love it. It's called Total Finder, and uh, what it is is it it has a whole lot of features, but the ones that I've been using the most is that it does tabs in your window. So you get your uh, your finder window, and then if you open up a new folder or something, or it'll just open it up in a new tab in your finder window, which is really cool. And then the other really handy thing that it does is if you have two tabs open, you can actually merge the tabs. And what it does is it puts one tab on the left and one tab on the right, and then you can drag and drop files between them and stuff. And it's it's just super handy. And so uh, if I have to move stuff around, if I have to move stuff into my Dropbox for my um, for my subcontractors or for my um, for my podcast, for my uh, virtual assistant to handle, um, I literally can just take them from where I've got them, usually on the digital audio recorder or something, and I can just drag them straight across. And then I can process them from there and things like that. So it's really handy. The, the place I learned about Total Finder um, is a podcast. Uh, it's called Business Tech Weekly, and you can get there at businesstechweekly.com. Um, and uh, that's done by a couple of really cool guys, um, Cliff Ravenscraft and uh, Andy Traub. And uh, I've kind of been following them for a while, and I've gotten into a few other podcasts about uh, running your own business or um, – you know, going out on your own and things like that and, and how to succeed, um, how to build a product and stuff like that. And so a couple of others that are kind of in, uh, done by some of the same people or um, by uh, people who are related to them uh, that I just want to mention are the 48 Days podcast. And that's by Dan Miller. He wrote the 48 Days to the Work You Love. 
And so uh, it, it's really just if you hate your job, um, he, he helps you figure out what you want to do, um, helps you figure out where to find the job that will uh, allow you to do that, um, put you through a whole bunch of steps in finding a job that don't involve going to job boards and things, which is really kind of an interesting approach. But, uh, you know, it, it's kind of finding that job market that isn't being actively advertised and maybe getting the, your dream job because there are only a handful of applicants for that job. Um, and then the other one uh, or the other two that I want to mention are uh, Free Agent Underground, and that's done by Dan's son, um, Kevin Miller. And it's kind of a different flavor. They're about he. They actually have a, a membership site where you can go and hook up with people, and they ha they kind of walk you through the whole process of figuring out what you're about, figuring out a business that works for you, helping you figure out the business model and the marketing and all that stuff, and uh, kind of runs you through that. So Free Agent Underground, and then the other one is the No More Monday Show, and that's done by Andy Traub, who's on Business Tech Weekly, and um, Justin Lucas Savage, who used to be my business coach. So um, just great podcast there and uh, some great stuff if you're looking to go out on your own, um, either freelancing or building a product. And uh, just, just some ideas on how to be a solopreneur or a good uh, small business entrepreneur. So that's, that's my stuff. But Total Finder totally rocks, and that's, that's kind of my thing right now. So with that, we will wrap up. Um, again, on our panel, we have in no particular order James Edward Gray. Bye, everybody. Don't forget Eloquent Ruby next week. Uh, Josh Susser. That's all, folks. Uh, Avdi Grimm. In conclusion, I pick Obi-Wan Kenobi because he's my only hope. <laughs> David Brady. Just remember, kids, I've missed you so much. And I'm Charles Maxwood from TeachMeToCode.com. Uh, you can pick up the podcast in iTunes. You can also listen to it on your Android device. Um, or whatever you listen to podcasts on. And uh, we really appreciate people leaving reviews in iTunes. If you have some feedback for us, you can also get us on Twitter at RubyRogues, or you can just email me, Chuck, at teachmetocode.com. And uh, we're always happy to get your feedback and uh, answer concerns and take great suggestions. So that's it. And uh, we'll catch you next week with Eloquent Ruby.